Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Helen Quilly from the film Sliding Doors. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Kirsta Christensen. Welcome back, Kirsta. Hello. Very glad to have you on. You're one of our most frequent guests. And in this case, this is a text that you suggested, and I believe it's because we've referenced it on the podcast several times, and I had acknowledged that I've never seen this movie. Yes. I, I forget which episode it was in, but I thought it was shameful that you'd never seen it and that it was something that we needed to rectify in your uh, cultural knowledge. Now, through cultural osmosis, I knew basically everything important about the movie it felt as I was watching it. <laughs> well, that's I mean, that's the funny thing about uh important cultural films um, is that they get referenced so many times that you kind of end up knowing a lot about them, even if you, you know, you can almost put them together out of the sort of references and parodies that you have seen, um, even if you've never seen the entire thing itself. And I actually had, as I was watching, I'm like, I remember reading a Roger Ebert review of this movie. And I'm like, that was like <laughs> 24 years ago. Did I really? And so I went and looked it up. I'm like, yep, that's what I remembered. <laughs> Yeah, well, he didn't. He didn't love it, did he? No. Uh, and uh, well, we'll save. We'll save any critiques yes. or praise until after we have done a full sure. synopsis of the film. Uh, <laughs> as we've noted, we're talking about Sliding Doors, a 1999 film starring Gwyneth Paltrow as Helen Quilly, and this was written and directed by Peter Howitt, and it tells the story of two different paths a woman's life could have taken if an incidental moment occurred differently. And as we've said, like sliding doors has become kind of uh, almost like um, like Groundhog Day. Like you, you, mm -hmm. you reference it and people know what it means, even though yeah. by itself that actually means nothing. <laughs> like if right. you just say Groundhog right. Day, you're like, why do I know that means time loop film? Well, because it's a classic yeah, yeah. film that yeah. has been referenced so many times. Why does sliding doors mean two different possible, you know, uh, outcomes? Well, just because there was this Gwyneth Paltrow movie 25 years ago. So some trivia about, well, I guess first, I kind of said how I came to it. I remember reading some reviews 23 mm -hmm. years ago, and I watched it this week. Uh, what about you, <laughs> Kirsta? Um, I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I think I probably saw it on VHS or DVD at some point. Um, I, I was trying to remember how I came to it, and I don't like... I don't remember anything specifically other than like, oh, it came out and I heard people liked it and I watched it. And I've seen it probably three or four times, including rewatching it this week. Um, so it's something that like, you know, wasn't this huge event in my life when it came out, but it's something I've revisited occasionally of like, oh yeah, I like that well enough. Um, and so, and then, you know, revisiting it this week, having to kind of pay more attention than before or, or coming back to it and then like forgetting one single plot point and being like, wait, who's that person? What are they setting up here? <laughs> Still remembering, you know, the, the main device and the main uh, ramifications of the device. So. All right. Well, I have a little bit of trivia about the film. So um, this idea of the kind of two parallel potential lives that can be led have drawn, has drawn comparisons to a 1987 Polish film called Blind Chance that shows three different versions of a man's life if a mundane event had occurred slightly differently. And also a 1949 film, The Interrupted Journey, that tells the story of what happens if a man gets off a train or if he hesitates and stays on the train. Um, and I think this is one of those instances where this kind of storytelling device or plot twist, I, I mean, it's not really a plot twist. I guess it's the storytelling device is not unique to this film, but something about the cultural moment when this film came out just embedded it in the cultural consciousness. Sure. And I think sliding doors is also just a uh, a niftier phrase that mm -hmm. is both like catchy enough that it has some distinction to it, whereas blind chance, like it's a little too open-ended. Right? Yeah. And it also just yeah. hints a little bit at, uh, you know, the idea of a sliding door that, that hints at like life could slide that way or this way. Mm-hmm. So something about yeah, that I, made this film kind of catch on a bit more for this this version of things. And and I think on the TV Tropes wiki, I think they call that the trope codifier, which is mm. so they're not the very first person to do it, but they're the people who kind of like cement it in the public consciousness as a trope. So they're the ones who sort of like 
people have done it a couple times before and then they kind of solidify it or like really define it for for the culture. So they're not the first and they're not necessarily even the best or the most recent. They're just the ones who kind of really nail it and really, you know, it's the one that everyone really remembers. Yeah, like we talk about um, in my field of study that like Superman put together all the elements of the superhero and codified this as a genre. But most mm-hmm. of the elements were floating through in other stories as late as, sure. or as early as like the late 1800s. You can find some mm-hmm. stories that's like, well, that's kind of the dual identity superhero thing. Um, but then it takes tell Superman where it's like, okay, this is now a distinct genre or a distinctly yeah. known thing. And I think that's what happened with, uh, with sliding doors. So the film has a 65% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I did a double take when I saw this number. In its first yeah, weekend, I was... <laughs> that this one oh, here. Sorry. Oh, were you talking about the Rotten Tomatoes score or the next? Oh one? no, I yeah, I was surprised about that. Although we can talk about that after the synopsis if you want. Uh, well, uh, we, we, let's let's talk about our reactions after the synopsis, I guess, yeah, and, okay, and where perfect. we think the rating should have been. Uh, sure. This is the number that kind of made me like go double check. I'm like, did I read that right? It made yeah. eight hundred thirty-four thousand dollars its first weekend of release in the U.S., but then yeah. it started to get like build word of mouth and ended up making. Mm-hmm. 11.8 million at the domestic box office, but worldwide it made 67 million. So oh. it was a bigger hit outside of the U S yeah. uh, rather yeah. than in the U S but even to move mm-hmm. from 800,000 its first weekend to almost 12 million in the U S that is like the, uh, I'm sure a huge sigh of relief for the producers. <laughs> where it's like, oh okay, my goodness. Yes. Something's happening. Uh, Cause that is such a, a nothing to only make 800,000 uh, in mm-hmm. its first weekend uh, on the scale of movie dollars. Obviously that would be like life-changing for the average American <laughs> to make right. 800,000 yes. in a weekend, but <laughs> that's a lot for um, a person, a little for a movie. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a v- very like, I, I wouldn't, I mean, it was, it only had a $6 million budget, but even mm-hmm. in the U S to make 11 million after advertising, that's probably not turning a profit in the U S uh, but this was an independent film made primarily in, uh, through, I think, English, British production offices. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, that also makes me or explains why it made so, did so much better in England um, than, right. than the average film is expected to. Uh, so I think in the end, they they were happy with what they got. Um, all right. Several sitcoms have episodes with split storylines and often the episode titles reference Sliding Doors. So there's a Frasier episode called Sliding Frasers. Uh, and there was Broad Cities <laughs> had one called Sliding Doors. And the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt had one called Sliding Van Doors. And some other sitcoms that have been identified as using this format, but not necessarily borrowing the title, are Malcolm in the Middle, Mad About You, and Community. And then um, I have a piece of trivia, which is that um, it was inspired by the, by the experience that the writer and director had, where he was supposed to meet a friend and he was running late. Um, and this would have been in the in the mid 90s or maybe in the early 90s because he worked on the screenplay for a while. But he was supposed to meet a friend and he was running late and he was like, OK, should I run and try to get the train or should I run to call them? Because this is before most people have cell phones. Um, so should I run to a payphone to call them to tell them I'm going to be late? And he ran to the payphone and ran into the street and almost got hit by a car. And so he started thinking, whoa, that was, you know, I thought this was a small decision, run for the train or run for the phone. And it turned out to be a really big decision. Um, so I want to, I want, and I wanted to bring that up just because I wanted, when I finished the synopsis, I want to talk about the similarities and the differences between that choice and then the sort of actual sliding doors moment in the film. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that'll be really interesting. I I did also, um, I was thinking about this right before we recorded that I've been reading this um, short story collection by Ted Chiang. Um, oh, yeah. And there's a, the last story in the collection, which is pretty long for, for a short story. It's called Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom. But it features a plot device where if you activate what's called a prism, you can communicate with the parallel dimension that started right when you activate that prism. So after like if there's a major life event that happens, people can go activate this prism and start communicating oh. and seeing if a different choice was made by, but you only communicate with yourself in this other dimension. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then he starts to go into like all the things that people do with this. Like one scientist just activates it and then does nothing but ask for weather reports <laughs> to see, because everything else on the world should be the same, except for that he activated this prism. Uh, and wow. and it, so he's trying to see if like the, the molecules, communicating somehow is going to affect the weather and what different yeah. weather reports or it talks about like sports fanatics uh, will just 
like track the NFL or well, he just has sports leagues in the other dimension sure. and then, and then try to decide who, what team between the dimensions had the best season Yeah, <laughs> as they, they get information shared that way. Uh, but that it, it's, I'm only partway through that particular story. Uh, but it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, even Ted Chiang is doing something, uh, kind yeah. of similar to this. Huh? I should, um, we should do a, a Ted Chiang story or novella sometime if we haven't yet. I don't know which one we do, but I've read, I've read his collection that includes the story that Arrival's based on, but I the, the story you're talking about doesn't sound familiar, so I don't think I've read that collection. See, I, I got this short story collection thinking it was the one with the Arrival short story, and I'm on the last one. I'm like, you know what? It wasn't. Oh, nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> it definitely isn't this one that I'm reading, and it was not any of the ones yeah. I read previously. <laughs> but each one of them is like really thought-provoking in a different way. So yeah, yeah, we should circle back and do one. Sure. All right. Well, before we move on to the summary and really dig into our th- feelings and uh, thoughts on this film, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also give updates on our fantasy box office for 2023. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and just on a personal note, um, our podcasting media medium that we well that we use to record these has suddenly changed things, and we're having to pay a bit more than we ever have before. So if anyone has felt inclined to donate, now would be a great time, <laughs> at least on our end, because the uh, the cost of podcasting yeah. has gone up for us. All right, uh, Kirsta, you were kind enough to write the plot summary for Sliding Doors, yes. so I will let you take it away. All right, here we go. The setting is London. A young woman wakes up, gets dressed, gets ready for work, leaves her boyfriend in bed in their flat, walks to the train, enters a fancy office building, heads into work at a PR firm running a bit late, and is immediately fired. It doesn't really matter why she's fired, except to say that this woman, whose name is Helen, thinks it's BS that she's been fired and that her boss was just looking for an excuse to get rid of her, but there's really nothing she can do about it. Meanwhile, back at the flat, her boyfriend is awake and up, and he's opening the door to let in another woman while Helen is gone. Uh-oh. Helen leaves the office where she's just been fired and gets into an elevator. She drops her earring, and a man standing next to her in the elevator picks it up and hands it to her. Helen leaves the building and tries to catch a train home, but she's briefly delayed by a child on the stairs of the station and barely misses getting into the train car. Then the scene rewinds until she's back at the top of the stairs, and this time the child's mother pulls the child out of the way, so Helen now reaches the door of the train a couple of seconds sooner and gets inside just before they close. Then we flash back to the version of Helen waiting in the station, then back to the version of Helen riding the train. We go back and forth a few times to emphasize there are now two separate timelines. From here on, the rest of the movie will cut back and forth between the two timelines. I will also go back and forth, but not quite as often as the movie does, FYI. Helen on the tube happens to sit by the same man she saw in the office elevator, although she doesn't recognize him at first. He's in a good mood and tries to start a conversation, but she's not into it because she just got fired. However, he recognizes her from the elevator, she apologizes, and they have a brief, friendly conversation. Incidentally, this man has a Scottish accent. (laughs) They got off at the same stop and he introduces himself as James. He tells her that if she's having a bad day, just remember what the Monty Python boys say. She responds, always look on the bright side of life, which is a famous Monty Python quote that is applicable to the situation. He says, no, nobody ever expects the Spanish Inquisition, which is a famous Monty Python quote that is not applicable to the situation. (laughs) She laughs at the non sequitur and they part ways. This Helen goes back to her flat to find her boyfriend in bed with the other woman whose name we learn is Lydia. Lydia, we've learned, is Jerry's ex, Jerry's her boyfriend, who broke things off when she moved to America, but now she's back in England and she decided that she wants to get back together with Jerry even though she knows that Jerry is with Helen. Meanwhile, Helen, who missed the train, is waiting in the station for the next train, but she hears an announcement that service is being suspended due to derailment. She goes outside to catch the taxi, but a guy tries to mug her while she's waiting, and she gets a head injury in the process. She goes to the hospital, tries to call Jerry, but he doesn't answer, and finally gets home much later, just missing running into Lydia. Jerry is shocked to see her home so early and with a head injury, especially since there's still evidence out that Lydia has been there, including two brandy glasses on the dresser. He quickly tries to hide all of the evidence and promises to take Helen out for a night on the town to forget about her terrible day. 
Meanwhile, Helen, who caught the train and who therefore caught her boyfriend cheating, goes to a local pub to drown her sorrows. She happens to run into James again, who's with a friend, Clive. Helen tells James that she came home to find her boyfriend with another woman. James offers sympathy. Helen's friend Nina comes to look for her and offer support. Hours later, Nina's helping a very drunk Helen out of the pub. James and Clive happen to be leaving at the same time, and James offers to share his taxi, which they take to Nina's flat. Meanwhile, Helen, who missed the train and therefore does not know that Jerry is cheating, goes out with Jerry to the same pub where they pass by James, but neither one notices the other. Remember that in this timeline, they never had a conversation in the train, so they only crossed paths briefly in the elevator. Helen realizes that she needs to get another job. We have been informed in passing that she is supporting both herself and Jerry since Jerry is, quote, writing a book. Helen can't find another PR job immediately, so she takes a job as a waitress in the evenings and as a sandwich delivery person in the mornings. Meanwhile, Helen, who caught the train, has been staying with Nina and hasn't touched Jerry in over a week. Nina suggests that Helen get a haircut as a fresh start. So this instead really of having useful. shoulder length, <laughs> yes, yes, it's so and it's smart and it is perfectly reasonable within the story. Yes, um, but a, a visual, just an instant visual cue for the audience from now on yes, about like, where. Like obviously, the point is the visual cue, but yeah. it also, but it's not, it's it's not really much of a stretch. Like it, like it works, it works perfectly by in the story. In the uh, yeah, sliding so, Frasers episode, I think the the inciting incident that sends him down different paths is which sweater he wears that day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Nina suggests that Helen get a haircut as a fresh start. So instead of having shoulder length, light brown hair, she cuts it very short and gets it dyed to a light blonde. From now on, Helen who caught the train and therefore caught Jerry cheating and dumped him is the one with short, lighter hair. And Helen who missed the train and therefore still doesn't know that Jerry is cheating is the one with longer, darker hair. Visually, this makes it much easier to keep track of which timeline we are in. Um, there's also, there's also kind of a trope, like the hair she has at the beginning, it's not, it's not dowdy, but it's also not chic. And mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow were used to her looking very chic. And so there's also kind of like, it's not surprising that, you know, she ends up with the chic haircut, a, a more trendy haircut. Yeah. Anyway, I'll be honest. Like when it started, I was like, I literally had a moment of like, is that Gwyneth Paltrow? Like, I know right. this is a Gwyneth Paltrow movie, but is this started with yeah. a different character that just looks yeah. kind of like Gwyneth Paltrow? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, short-haired Helen is at Nina's when she hears the doorbell ring. She thinks it might be Jerry, but instead it's James stopping by to see how she's doing. He takes her out for a milkshake. She says she's not really interested in seeing anyone right now, but he insists he's okay with just being friends. James asks Helen out again. After asking her out, James has a conversation with his mother, who's reluctantly going to the hospital for some kind of treatment. James tells her to remember what the Monty Python boys say, to which his mother responds, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, cementing that this is a recurring joke of his. Later, they go out with a group of his friends where she has a good time, but she tells Nina that she's still not interested in him. James suggests to Helen that instead of looking for another PR job, she should start her own PR firm since she has the skills and experience to do so. She applies for a loan and opens up her own business. Meanwhile, long-haired Helen is still working miserable jobs to try to make ends meet, and she's also getting a bit suspicious of Jerry. She remembers that she saw two crystal brandy glasses out the day she came home early for work, but Jerry insists that there was only one out. He had quickly tossed the second one into the clothes hamper. Helen later finds the brandy glass in the laundry hamper and asks Jerry about it, but he insists that Anna must have tossed it there the last time they had a party. Later, Jerry tells her that he's going to the library to do research for his book, but he's really sneaking out to meet Lydia. However, Helen is suspicious and follows him, so he actually has to go to the library to throw her off the scent. Jerry confides to a friend of his that he doesn't want to keep seeing Lydia, but he doesn't seem to have enough of a backbone to break things off with her either. Meanwhile, short-haired Helen is invited by James to watch him compete in a club rowing tournament on the river. And there's a funny note about this, too. Um... So, so it's like a, it's like a crew team. And originally they were going to hire, like, I think university rowers to compete to, to be like the extras in the scene. And then the university rowers all had like six inches and 40 pounds of muscle on the actor playing James and he just looked <laughs> shrimpy by comparison. Um, so they ended up just hiring like people who are part of a club team who don't average people look like (laughs) exactly exactly yeah who weren't you know but that is a kind of a funny um issue with casting that you know your lead is probably not actually an elite athlete so if you hire elite athletes to be extras it will be very noticeable (laughs) you see this uh anytime there's like a, a famous actor that does like a basketball scene it's like Yes, I think sure. all those other basketball yeah. players are like five, six. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> okay. Um, meanwhile, long-haired Helen is walking along this, the river at the same time as the same rowing competition. And she, and even though she's never met James, she says to herself that somehow she knew there would be a rowing competition going on today with one team in purple and white uniforms. This is our first indication that maybe the two timelines are somehow affecting each other. Meanwhile, short-haired Helen cheers James on as his team wins the competition. On the river that evening, Helen tells James that she's particularly fond of a nearby bridge. James tries to kiss Helen, but she pulls back. Then she changes her mind and she kisses him. That night, they sleep together. Helen has landed a PR contract to do the launch for a new restaurant that Clive is opening. The party's a big success and she's having a great time, but she sees Jerry waiting in the corner of the room wanting to talk to her. Jerry begs her for a second chance, but Helen is reluctant. Jerry gives her a goodbye kiss at the end of their conversation, which James sees. James leaves the party early without talking to Helen. Meanwhile, long-haired <laughs> Helen discovers that she's pregnant. Jerry's out of town for the weekend, supposedly on a research trip, but he's actually having a weekend tryst with Lydia. Helen calls Jerry to see how he's doing. She's about to tell him that she's pregnant when Lydia starts making a lot of noise in the background and Jerry has to end the call for fear of blowing his cover. Lydia gets angry at Jerry for his indecisiveness in not being able to choose between her and Helen, and she dumps him. Jerry comes back to London and buys long-haired Helen flowers, which makes her suspicious because she thinks maybe he's trying to cover up for something. Later, she has an evening interview at someone's apartment for a, for a new PR job, or so she thinks. Meanwhile, short-haired Helen hasn't heard from James since he left early at the party. She considers visiting his office to see if he's there, but she pauses indecisively in front of the building's sliding doors. <laughs> it's a theme. Walking away from the building, she happens to run to him anyway. He apologizes for not calling and says he was worried she still had to work out her feelings about Jerry. Helen assures him that she's over Jerry. Later, short-haired Helen takes a pregnancy test and realizes that she's pregnant with James's baby. Helen goes to James' office to talk to him. James' secretary says that he's not in, and she's not sure when he'll be back, because he's gone to visit his mother in the hospital with his wife. Oh no! no! Helen pauses, stunned, in front of the building's sliding doors. But he had a Scottish accent! <laughs> I know. How could anyone with a Scottish accent be a terrible person? Uh, meanwhile, long-haired Helen leaves to go to what she thinks is an interview for a PR job. In reality, it's at Lydia's apartment, and Lydia's setting up Helen to run into Jerry. When Helen knocks at the door, Jerry answers, and Helen realizes he's been having an affair. Um... Meanwhile, James stops by Anna's place to talk to short-haired Helen, and Anna chews him out, telling that Helen knows he's married. James goes looking for Helen in all of the usual haunts, the diner, the pub, Clive's restaurant, then he finally finds her standing in the rain on the bridge that she once said she loved. She doesn't want to talk to him at first, but he pleads with her to listen, then tells her that he is married, but he and his wife have separated and they will soon be divorced. He says that his soon-to-be ex-wife agreed to keep up the pretense that things were still okay for the sake of his mother, who's been sick in the hospital. Helen forgives him. Oh, and then he says, like, that he wanted to tell her, and then he has no good reason for telling her. Because his reason for not telling her is plot point. It is not actually character yeah. motivated. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason that this has a 60-something percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's something Roger Ebert specifically pointed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, like, his, his mother seems like someone who'd be pretty chill with the reality of sometimes relationships don't work out. Okay. Um, Helen forgives him, then says she should probably call Nina to tell her that she's okay. Helen crosses the street to a payphone. James calls after her that he loves her while she is in the middle of the road. She turns and stops and is immediately hit by a car. Meanwhile, long-haired Helen runs down the stairs away from Lydia's apartment. Jerry runs after her. She runs into the street and is also hit by a car. Both Helens are taken to the hospital, both end up in intensive care, and both have miscarriages. Short-haired Helen's injuries are very severe. James talks to her while she's unconscious, telling her that he's glad they met that day on the train. Short-haired Helen dies. Long-haired Helen also has severe injuries, but she survives. Jerry tells her he'll do anything for her, having discovered what kind of man he truly is. She tells him that she wants him to walk out the door and leave. This is a very satisfying scene. Uh, long-haired Helen is discharged from the hospital. James, who, remember, she's never met in this timeline, is also in the hospital. Helen gets into the hospital elevator to leave. James gets good news about his mother's condition, then he leaves and gets into the same elevator on a different floor. Helen drops her earring. James picks it up and hands it back to her. Seeing her sad face, he tells her to cheer up and remember what the Monty Python boys say, to which she responds, nobody ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. They look at each other in confusion and maybe recognition. Roll credits. And in With case a... there's any confusion about how the story ended or where it's headed, the song that plays over the credits includes the refrain, she's got a young man waiting and she'll find true love and tenderness on the block. 
<laughs> so the implication is that now this version of Helen is going to end up with James. <laughs> yeah, the when end. the uh, Dido song started playing in the credits, I was transported back to the 1990s. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that turns out I unexpected like sense memory of like whoa i feel like i am in yeah, a different yeah, place yeah. just hearing the opening <laughs> notes of dido's thank you yes the ubiquitous song okay um so it's funny because i i like this movie but i didn't love it and i was surprised that it had such a low rotten tomato score um and then you know, having to watch it so carefully in order to write the synopsis, I was like, oh yeah, there are a lot of issues with this with this film. <laughs> Story-wise, it's, you know, See, it's a good film, but it's not a great film. Yeah, for me, my thought was uh, the most interesting thing about this is the plot device they're using to tell a story, not the characters mm -hmm. or the story. <laughs> yes. Yes, the characters are pretty flat. Um, Jerry and Lydia, in particular, are completely unredeemable. Like, they're just... Lydia is just an awful person and Jerry is just an awful person. Although actually this time through just reading it, I realized like Jerry's flaw is that he can't make a choice. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of an interesting, you know, that's kind of an interesting parallel to, to the theme of, of choices, how, how, you know, your life can be affected by making choices, but your life can also be affected by not making a choice. Um, but yeah, the, there's, there's nothing redeeming. Ooh, I think you may have just hit on the deepest thing in the entire film right there. <laughs> yes. Yes. I like um, that. That was, that was really good. Thank you. Thank you. We're done. That's the podcast. Um, but yeah, I, James is almost perfect except for not telling her about his ex-wife. He also like, <laughs> You know, and who knows what the relationship is like, but he also gives his ex-wife a lot of like casual kisses still, you know, one that she, one that she, I didn't put this in the synopsis, but one that she witnesses, you know, such that anyone would assume that they were, that things were fine, which, yeah, you know, most people I know who are even on somewhat friendly terms with their exes do not treat them that way. Um it was and not then, yeah, um, but, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow character like being overly suspicious. It was like, no, this is the text. I'm not reading something. Yeah, 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 this. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and like even if you know, yeah. Anyway, so so that's kind of weird. Um, but like other than those weird plot devices, James is more or less perfect. Um, I have no idea how Helen and Jerry got together in the first place. You know, <laughs> that is a good just point. To be, yeah, yeah. I do. I I completely understand. I completely understand Jerry and Lydia. You know, Lydia likes controlling people and Jerry likes people making decisions for him because he can't make decisions. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I do not understand a world in which Helen and Jerry got together in the first place. Can I tell you um, one thing that bothered Roger Ebert about the film that you haven't mentioned yeah. yet? The scene when, uh, oh, see, I'm already forgetting characters' names, even though I've just heard you say them like a dozen times. Jerry opens mm -hmm. the blinds and Lydia is standing right outside the window. Yes. Uh, he's like, I, I hate this, this in movies because there's no logical sense for why she would be at that window no nothing to tell the the audience yes. like has she been there for a day has she been there for an hour has she been there? does she does she live outside this window there's no reason for a woman to be staring through a window when the blinds are closed <laughs> yeah if, if if this isn't a horror movie in which that's a sort of understandable trope um yeah yeah um and and you know helen doesn't really the, the other thing i was thinking about is like the actual event that causes that causes the split timeline um, is not, is not something that Helen chooses. It's something that happens to her. So mm. either she's delayed a little bit on the stairs by this child, or she's not delayed by the child. It's really like the, the mother of the child's choice. Like, does she see that this <laughs> child is in her way and move the child out of the way or not? Um, and so thinking about that, like, you know, if it's outside circumstance or if it's personal choice or if it's randomness. So the community episode that's similar to this literally is about the role of a die. Um, and so even though it's not anyone's choice, it's like it's it, randomness is part of um, is part of the device. And so I think the story is weaker because because, you know, the actual the actual event that motivated the director was him choosing. Do I you know, do I um, go you know, walk across the street to go to the payphone, or do I try to catch the train? 
And the way that he set it up for Helen is that she doesn't have a choice. This is something that happens to her. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the story splits along the two paths. And I think the story is weaker for that because it's her reacting to things. It's not about her own agency. I will say one other nitpick that bothered me. Yeah. Um, And I understand why when you're making a Hollywood film that you want to reach a mass audience, this was the choice that they made. Uh, yes. But the fact that we're supposed to, as the audience assume that she's getting together with, uh, uh, oh, what's the good guy's name again? James. James. Uh, yes. When they had never met, this yes. becomes less about like divergent life paths. Yeah. Uh, it almost makes it feel inevitable that she and James were going to get together instead of, right. I mean, okay, she died in the other one. So there is that, <laughs> you know, she's, she, she, she was dead, but with James in one timeline and here she's going to be alive, but with James, but it feels like running into James was an inevitability in her life and not right. the result of the Barbie doll girl, you know, slowing her down on the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, yeah. Which undermines the entire premise of one thing really affecting your life because all it does is it is it diverts your life temporarily um so that you know instead of being like your life splits off into two paths and those two paths diverge and never come back it just diverts your life temporarily sort of like you know like a river island like the river is flowing Mm -hmm. on one side and flowing on the other side and then it kind of comes back together at the end um weirdly and i don't know if this is just me i had always kind of interpreted it as like the two Helens sort of merge at the end. So well, like, because the there's that timely... one line about the knowing that there'd be a crew team here. Yes. Yes. Which I hadn't caught before. Um, because, okay. Cause if you, if you, if you keep that line, then it implies that the two timelines are somehow like there's some sort of communication across the two timelines. Right. And so if there's communication across the two timelines, then the one Helen can die and the other Helen can still know about the Monty Python in joke. Right. Um, or the two Helens merge. And now we have, I guess, cause maybe I couldn't accept that she actually like died in one version. I don't know. That's kind of weird. Um, and that seems like sort of a cruel life punishment for catching a train, you know, <laughs> But then, but then again, that's actually kind of more true to this, you know, to the, the, the premise that premise the the, there's random outcomes based on minor decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had read it that they kind of like merged, and, and that's so, why she knew this the joke. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think the joke and that line at the about the crew and that joke are where you're like, ah, are these like completely divergent paths? Or are we supposed to read yeah. something more into into the in, into their crossover or or? Or what, exactly what you're saying. Like, are they merging there at the end? Right, right. Or or like, even at, when they were in the hospital at one point, I was like, is one of these going to be like a coma fever dream situation? Yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised that one version of her died at the end? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that was... Um, it was a choice that I wasn't expecting at all. But I also... Mm-hmm there's so many big moments in these characters lives that I don't feel like the stakes land be- because so much of the story is about making the audience follow this strange premise of storytelling. Right. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. um, her being pregnant and losing the child, like it, it almost feels like an afterthought <laughs> uh, yeah. to what happens in this world. And it, and what it ends up being is that the, I mean, I mean like so many of the, I, I think of, of some of the nits to pick when we start to try and look closely at this for character and narrative purposes, mm-hmm. it becomes a piece that was there as a, a, as something on the chessboard for making the story make sense rather than yes. something that motivates character actions or is coming through character motivation. Like James yeah, not telling it, the story of his, of his divorce earlier. Yeah. 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 Because, because you have that parallel where, you know, where, where long haired Helen finally figures out that Jerry's cheating and short haired Helen thinks that James is cheating and then, you know, it's kind of an echo and then it turns out like, no, it's it's a different situation. But yeah, you have the similarity of like, they're both pregnant, they both get hit by the car, they both, you know, and then there's also like, if they both get hit by a car at the exact same time, then like, then did they have a choice or were they both like, fated what? to get hit by a car? Was this final destination that yeah, <laughs> a, yeah. an accident um, was coming for her at this minute, no matter right, what? Because right. she faints at the same you- minute in both worlds or or feels faint right yeah um yes 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 she feels faint because because she's pregnant in both worlds 
um, or, or first starting to, you know, to experience the symptoms of pregnancy. Um, and you, you, did you even do an episode on this? Now I can't remember. Um, but you've seen Russian doll, right? No, I have not. We, oh, I think we talked okay. about it. Like, it's one of those that we've referenced the existence of, okay. but I have not done an episode yeah. on it. I've, I haven't actually watched yet. Well, maybe we can pencil that in for next time. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so there's, there's an interesting, okay. Well, without spoiling anything, I'll just say that that one has also has some interesting commentaries on like choice, you, you know, what part of your life is a choice and what part is kind of destiny in terms of, in terms of, and that one's like more time loopy, but it's still like, you know, do you choose things or, or does life choose things for you kind of, kind of situation. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a reason that this, that this film is so well known as, um, as a trope codifier. Um, mm -hmm. but in terms of it being like an actually good rom-com, it's very thin. Yeah. Um, um, to the point where, like I said, I was already having trouble remembering the characters' names after I watched it just a little bit ago and listened to you read the entire yeah. <laughs> plot summary. It's still like I'm sure far more people can name the film Sliding Doors and know yes. that it has Gwyneth Paltrow in it than they can name a single character's name in it. Yeah. yeah. Like um, oh, it's, it's the Gwyneth Paltrow one about the two timelines. I think that's a fairly common level of like cultural osmosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, that's, I mean, that's not like a huge criticism because like how many things can you say where like, oh, there was a Julia, Julia Roberts rom-com rom and that, you know, those can be good movies, but you know, do mm -hmm. the names of those, you know, some of it is Gwyneth Paltrow's star power is greater than yeah. a character name uh, in this yes. instance. Yeah. I, I also, cause I, I ended up watching it twice once to do kind of a draft and then once to kind of pick up some pieces because Oh, this, writing this summaries story. can make you realize, like, wait, what? How is this piece over here all of a sudden? Yeah, this is something yeah, I've yeah, definitely yeah. found. <laughs> yeah, especially with a story as complex as this, um, and also figuring out, you know, when do I tell what part of the story? Anyway, um, oh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been doing a like a, a time travel story. Where I'm like, okay, uh -huh. I'm just going to skip that because it's not, you know, I, I'm just I got to yes. condense this all down, and then it's like two paragraphs later, I'm like, oh my goodness, I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and one thing that I couldn't figure out how to bring up in the story, but it does, there's a line that comes in passing where someone mentions that. So, so at the very beginning, she, it's been her birthday the weekend before um, she's coming to work on a Monday. Um, and, and a later character mentions that she's a Gemini, which I never caught before, but obviously the Gemini symbol is twins. And so mm. then that sort of signals the, you know, the twin characters who are going to diverge. So that's kind of a fun little Oh. Um, little note that I didn't know how to bring in. I, I've known um, that since I was a child because of a Scooby-Doo episode where one of the plot crew clues was someone wrote Gemini down and Daphne's like, that means twin. <laughs> well, it's you had a cultured childhood. <laughs> Scooby-Doo, giving me knowledge that has stayed with me for 40 years. That's right. Um, um, I, I anyway, so the second time through, I found myself being very sorry for Anna because she is such a best friend character. Like she has, you know, she shows up to to <laughs> to comfort her friend when mm -hmm. she finds out when Helen finds out about Jerry and she, you know, lets her stay with her and her. They both have very nice apartments, by the way. Oh, apparently yes. quite downtown in London. In, in London, um, right? <laughs> In London, and apparently you can maintain that apartment on the salary of a part-time waitress plus a part-time sandwich delivery person. Um, and and so a no good uh, unpublished author. <laughs> well, yes, right. Who brings it? Yeah, who brings in no salary? Um, but yeah, Anna just exists to support Helen. She does not have her own life at all. Um, you know, Hannah or Helen at first thinks that James isn't hitting on her and, and Anna's like, oh, well, if that guy was looking at me the way he was looking at you, you know, I'd be taking him home tonight instead of you. Um, but yeah, she just, she, it's kind of a thankless character. Is there she been, just, it, it feels like there should be, and maybe there has been like the film that is like the quirky best friend from a nineties rom-com is made into the protagonist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, isn't that, isn't that Bridesmaids? Uh, I haven't seen it, but, uh, yeah. I, the fact that it's called Bridesmaids rings, like that's likely true. <laughs> yeah. I, Cause I this think, was I definitely mean, a character type in the nineties with the, all the romantic yes, comedies. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, and I still think, yeah. And I still think it's kind of an issue. Um, 
anyway, this time through, I was sort of hashtag justice for Anna. You know, Anna deserves <laughs> her own hot Scottish or other nationality uh, boyfriend hitting on her. Maybe Anna could end up with Clive. I don't know. Did they ever meet? I don't know if they ever met. Um, I don't know what, what Clive's deal is. Um, yeah, I was like, if Clive is I'm like, okay, he's better than Jerry, but I still, like, he enables Jerry a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to- yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing about, yeah, because there's a part where Clive and Oh, sorry. Are you thinking of Russell or Clive? Russell is Jerry's friend. Clive oh, is. I was thinking of Jer- of Russell. Sorry, Russell. Russell is great. Russell. Well, he, Russell the is- thing is, he, like, he calls Jerry out, but he also just lets Jerry be. So, like, he's yeah. It's not quite as much of uh, if you're a friend with this big of a loser, you might yes. need to let him know even more <laughs> aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> how yeah, bad he is like how badly right. his life choices are affecting other people if it was just him Russell, like life choices yeah. for himself that's yeah fine. yeah yeah no that's fair but, but when um, he's actively hurting other people and the guy's just kind of like you know yeah. you're a jerk right <laughs> yes russell russell is the muse who tells you know or the oracle who tells jerry who just straight up laughs at jerry every time he can't make a choice and you're right he doesn't really do anything i mean he doesn't he doesn't tell he doesn't you know tell he doesn't Helen become or involved anything. in anyone else's life right, at all right but he absolutely tells jerry what a terrible person he is and how much he's brought all of this on himself which is absolutely true like it's all his you know all of this is of his own making um his, his inability to say no to lydia and then his inability to figure out what he actually wants and then um yeah, you know, he he just he just knows he's in a sweet situation with Helen supporting him at her fancy PR job, and he doesn't want to give that up. But he also wants to have a thing with Lydia, so um, yeah. So who even knows what happens with that? But yeah, yeah, Russell's great. Aside from the fact that Russell isn't like I'm going to do the right thing and tell Helen what's going on, or even um, he doesn't really insist enough to Jerry that you should do the right thing. He just kind of said like laughs at him and says you're making bad. No, choices. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of yeah. Russell's kind of amoral but mm-hmm. that is better than jerry oh. and lydia being actively immoral leagues um, better than lydia and jerry they are the worst <laughs> oh yeah no no yeah lydia's terrible I, I i still feel like lydia's worse than jerry but jerry's still pretty awful um, yeah I, I think that it's lydia's like aggressively bad and jerry right. is just pathetically bad yes yes <laughs> <laughs> this is good. We have ourselves some adverbs to modify our adjectives. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, it's pretty thin. And, and you know, um, let's see. Like, I'm thinking about Lydia right now. Sorry, because of this conversation. I know yeah, you were uh-huh. going somewhere else. But um, like the fact that she calls Helen to force Helen to see that Jerry's having an affair is maybe the most agentive thing anyone does in this entire film. That's actually really true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because because James doesn't tell Helen about his soon to be ex wife until he's forced to. Jerry can't make a decision to save his life. Helen makes choices with what she has in front of her, but she doesn't have all the information. You know, half the time, Nina just exists to support Helen. Um, Clive exists to have a restaurant. Um, oh, that's Clive. Uh, yeah, I, I meant Lydia. to go back to the, which one's Clive. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Clive is Clive is James's friend at the restaurant. So he's he's James's friend at the pub, and then he's James's friend who's opening the restaurant that Helen gets the PR gig for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Clive doesn't have much personality either. Um, and and I don't even know if I would have caught his name the first time I saw it. Um, yeah, that's true. Lydia is the one Lydia and the mom of the girl with the Barbie doll. <laughs> Are the ones who show agency in this film. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you know, and then Helen's decision to walk across the street to call Nina, which is kind of a weird choice, but she has to make that choice to get hit by a car. Um, Helen running away from Lydia makes a lot more sense that she would get 
get hit, you know? Right, but we're also, we may have decided that was actually just uh, the Final Destination monster coming to cause an accident. Yes. Well, yes. If we think that's the case, then no matter where she was, she would have been hit by the car. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you're crossing the street at night in the rain, don't stop and don't, don't call after someone until they've crossed the street safely. And don't stop and turn around as your perfect boyfriend tells you that he loves you or you'll get hit by a car and die or your timeline will get reabsorbed into another timeline and and who even knows what that means. Can I tell you something that I think supports our crossover with Final Destination theory that we've been building? Okay. That van does not slow down a bit for a human being in the road. Oh, sure. <laughs> Uh, like that footage, I was like waiting for like the obvious like break sound. Even I'm like, I don't. Yeah, like, yeah. Maybe oh no, it doesn't. That, that van just really came on. <laughs> Took out Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of the scene at the end of Mean Girls when Regina George suddenly gets hit by a, a bus <laughs> out of nowhere. Anyway, oh, that that is one of my favorite little scenes. <laughs> like just so perfect- out of. It's so unexpected, yeah. <laughs> Perfect two, two, three seconds of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Community is a great TV show. Watch the episode Remedial Chaos Theory. <laughs> um, watch the other sitcoms that reference it. Watch Run, Lola, Run, which is a film I adore. Um, watch Russian Doll. Um, and, you know, if you if you find yourself wishing that you had actually ever seen Sliding Doors instead of just referencing it, I think it's worth going back and and you know watching at least once but um but there's a reason that the trope has lasted while maybe the film the plot of the film has not which is uh, for me like a a fascinating piece of like cultural history when when something Mm -hmm. like that happens um and it it makes this film almost feel like it has a iconic status and then you go watch it. You're like, yeah, it was all right. Like, I don't think it was offensively bad. I would have given it, right. you know, like I think Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars. I think that's probably about yeah. right. Like, it's it's just kind of uh, it has a quirk and a premise to make it memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in his review, he said, "I'm gonna just for clarity, I'm gonna call her Helen A and Helen B." And at the end, he's like, uh-huh. "I wish there was a Helen C who had an interesting life." <laughs> <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> and he, and he yeah, says he's like i have no qualms with uh with gwyneth paltrow's performance it's the script mm-hmm. she's been given doesn't give her enough to do that's yeah. interesting and he actually really liked uh the scottish man he, he's like oh, yeah, gave a yeah. little a little shout out to his performance which is good earnest good guy performance but again mm-hmm. it just feels a little slight when you're trying to if you have say a, 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 an hour-long podcast discussion where you're supposed to talk about great characters you start yeah. to dig into this one and you're like, hmm, does it have great characters or does this just have a, a memorable premise? Well, and even the even the randomness involved in her meeting him, because one, she runs into him in the elevator. Two, she runs into him in the train, but she wouldn't have talked to him on the train if he hadn't been like, oh, I just saw you in the elevator. Mm-hmm. Three, they happen to get off at the same stop, which implies they kind of live near each other or or work near each other um, or his work is near her you know whatever so that for when she's going to what is presumably her local pub or bar he happens to go to the same one because it's presumably also convenient for him so they run in again then he can give her a ride to her friend's house then he knows where her friend lives and he can come back to check up on her um so there's a lot of i mean it's not just one set of sliding doors like there's a lot of coincidence involved in her meeting him and getting to know him because if you don't have that sort of repeated pleasant interaction like like it's much too thin for her to suddenly be in love with someone that she meets once on an elevator meets once in a train meets once in a bar um so it has to keep kind of happening over and over again in order to at at a minimum i think that you know him meeting her while he's in kind of a complicated relationship situation and she's just getting over someone. I do think, I did think that the progression of the relationship was fairly realistic of like, you know, this is not great timing for either of us, but we're kind of hitting it off. Um, and, you know, and we've had enough sort of positive, friendly interaction so that when it, it does turn out that we're interested in each other, like that can kind of build on that, you know, but again, mm-hmm. if you, if you take either storyline just straight through as a plot, they're, they're both very thin. Um, and the real conflict comes from, you know, popping back and forth between them. 
Yeah, and, and it feels odd to say that because there are some really big life moments, like finding out mm-hmm. your husband or your long-term boyfriend's having an affair, finding out yeah. you're pregnant, losing the child. And, and yeah. yet, like, none of those really feel super significant. <laughs> like, when I think back on this movie, it's all about the the the, the storytelling premise, which um, I think gets, like we already said, like, actually ends up being a little bit undermined by like the potential crossover, but left yeah. ambiguous of the crossover of these two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the feeling of inevitability that she was going to meet this guy and fall in love with this guy. Um, yes. And I don't know if any of that is like, uh, sometimes uh, if it is a, you know, a writer director with, you know, that, that's newer on the scene and they've got like a big concept movie. Sometimes there's like mm-hmm. twists that feel like studio notes where it's like, uh, mm-hmm. you got to give a happy ending to the audience uh, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. But this one was, as far as I could tell, like pretty independently produced. So I don't know that it is. I just think yeah. maybe he didn't quite stick the landing. But the the concept is so interesting uh, mm-hmm. that that it it surpasses the quality of this film itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's also worth saying that like this is certainly in terms of every film that gets produced and gets widely released, this is certainly above average. Mm-hmm. Um, it just could almost have been. You know, it's it's not while you were sleeping, which is something that is kind of from the same time period. That's another, you know, sort of sort of gimmicky premise movie. But that one hits hits every single sticks, every single landing, whereas this one, um, you know, has to have the throwaway line of James in the rain saying, I wanted to tell you. I don't know why I didn't tell you. I'm like, the scriptwriter <laughs> couldn't think of a good reason for you not to tell her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I so, just yeah. wasn't given any real motivation. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is a rough moment. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, I'm glad know. we talked about this though. Uh and again, yeah. I, I am always fascinated with these uh like texts and pop culture where like the some aspect of it like outshines so much of the rest of it that you mm-hmm. almost forget everything else about it. Yes. All yeah, right. it, it is interesting when when oh, just one aspect of something you know comes up instead of the whole the whole plot of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Well, Kirsten, thank you for coming on. Do you have anything you would like to plug? Um, watch an old movie that you've never seen. Oh, that is good advice, uh, listeners. That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And again, um, our cost of podcasting has gone up, so if you're interested in donating a little to Patreon, we would appreciate that. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Bye-bye. Yeah, it is the most needed sound for a podcast is old-timey baseball (laughs) organ.